When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side. They were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. This is the shortest version of the resurrection account in the four Gospels. And as you read the other three, you'll fill in more details. But this really gives us a very efficient, uh, kind of an executive summary about what happened. It was just another day for this angel. Oh, what? What are you so afraid about? He's not here. Why would you think he's here? Go tell his disciples. And Peter, why Peter in particular? Because you remember Peter had denied Jesus. And Mark was a protege of Peter. So in this gospel, he wants to make it real clear that Jesus wanted to reconcile Peter to himself. The part that grabs me is verse 8. Trembling and bewildered. Have you ever been trembling and bewildered? Involuntarily? Most people who get up here to speak kind of feel like that. Like, I can't believe I'm up here. And bewildered. You might be saying or doing things that make no sense to you because you're trying to figure out where you are, where to begin. To be trembling and bewildered means to be in a state of complete upset. Everything is upside down. You're trying to make sense of something that makes no sense at all. And having been given these instructions by this eminent presence, what they came to realize later was an angel. They immediately didn't do it. They were that rattled. They said nothing to anyone because... They were afraid. Two thousand years ago, Jesus rose from the dead. So they say. So they say. They being the witnesses to that event. They being the witnesses who could never deny that they'd seen what they'd seen, that they'd come to know what they had come to know. And even the threat of death, and even literally being murdered, martyred, could not dissuade them from saying, it's what I saw. It's what I know. There's nothing else I can tell you. To tell you otherwise would be to deny the most real thing 
I've ever experienced. These witnesses ended up writing letters and compiling accounts called Gospels. We see them in what we know as the New Testament. The New Testament completes the Old Testament. It brings to fulfillment, fruition, everything that was promised. All the momentum from that Old Testament comes into its fullness in the New Testament. And that's what these witnesses, the, the, the word martyr literally means witnesses. That's what these martyrs wrote. Eventually, 60 years after the fact, in 93 AD, this happened in 33 AD, 60 years later, a fellow named Josephus, the official historian for Rome, wrote an account of this. Now, I've just read you something from the Bible, and you'd assume that I would read something from the Bible on Easter Sunday. I want to read you something from history, not from the Bible. Joseph was, was born in 37 AD, four years after this event. He was born a Jew, but he became a born-again Roman. I'll tell you how that happened. Most Jews do not aspire to become born-again Romans. But he was motivated by his imminent execution by the Romans. When he knew that they were going to kill him, he was incredibly inspired <laughs> to rethink everything he'd up to that point thought about ever considering being a Roman. He'd been born an affluent, aristocratic member of a high Jewish family related to a long line of priests. His forebears had been rulers over Israel before the Romans came in and took charge. So he grew up with every opportunity every advantage. He was one of the elite. He was a one percenter. He was asked at a critical time by the rulers in Israel, would you go and help defend us against a Roman incursion? So at age 40, year 67 AD, he finds himself in northern Israel, Galilee, fighting off the Romans, and it's a lopsided fight. And eventually he's taken captive, and he stands before his captor, and his life passes before his eyes. He says to Vespasian, I think, through my own wisdom about being able to assess mortal men, and also I believe by God's inspiration, you will be Caesar someday. Vespasian said, I've got a spot on my team for a guy just like you. <laughs> I want you in my organization. It turned out that Vespasian went on to, in fact, become Caesar. Everything changed for Josephus. He changed his name to Flavius Josephus. That was a way of recognizing that I'm part of the, the uh, Vespasian crew. I owe all, all that I have and all that I am to Vespasian's good graces. And so here in 97 AD, or 93 AD, he writes this account in what's called the Jewish Antiquities. It's the great history of the era, courtesy of Josephus. And he says this about Jesus. Now there, now, there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, <clears throat> a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ. And when Pilate, at the, at the suggestion of the principal men among us, had condemned him to the cross. Those that loved him at the first did not forsake him. For he appeared to them alive again the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold these and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him. And here's the way he ends this account in his large history of that century. 
and the tribe of Christians so named for him are not extinct at this day. I don't know what Josephus meant to imply there, but I read that, I think, okay, somebody who's at the center of things in Rome somehow is making a point that this ridiculous idea that somebody rose again from the dead and claimed to be the Messiah, the Savior of the world, should have gone away a long time ago, don't you think? But here it is, 60 years later. And the tribe of Christians, so named for him, are not extinct at this day. And I imagine you could add to that, go figure. Why? I mean, this idea that Jesus rose again from the dead has been controversial since first reported and often dismissed out of hand. That's a familiar turn of phrase probably to you. I don't know if you ever think about what that means to dismiss something out of hand. It means that you refuse it completely without thinking about it or discussing it. If you said to somebody, I have a way to cut your expenses in half and double your revenue, would you just dismiss it out of hand? Probably not. You'd at least say, really, tell me more. What makes you think you could do that? So why? I mean, if it's true, it's a major event. You'd want to know about it, consider it. And if not true, it's a major lie. But why not then just discuss it, discredit it, and then dismiss it? That's what I would want to do. When I hear something is controversial, I always want to know, well, why? What's so controversial about it? Tell me more. Maybe it's nutty. Maybe it's the greatest idea I've never heard. But though never discredited, it is still dismissed because it's not just a major event or a major lie, it's a major upset. There's no category for this. Who would expect it? The very people who were closest to Jesus did not expect this. They were trembling and bewildered. They didn't know what to make of it. They were as shocked as anybody about this event. Over the years, I've noticed that those who dismiss this event don't do it based on fact. Now, we'd all, we all like to think of ourselves as being fact-based people. I make all my decisions based on pure rationality, except for when it comes to cars and clothes and electronic gear, mountaineering gear, a oh, new bike, anything that's really neat. It's all fact-based. I'm sure Consumer Reports wrote an article, and if they did, I'm good with it. I don't need to read it. We'd like to think we're all facts-based, but we're not. Other factors kick into gear, right? Facts are messy, after all. Facts document truth. Sometimes it's better not to deal with facts, but to deal with factors that allow us to disguise the truth, to move it out of the way so it's not any longer inconveniently in front of us. We dismiss facts and truth when we fear the implications might be upsetting. La, 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 I'm not listening, right? We've done that, either physically or in our head. We've said, I just don't want to hear it. Don't talk to me about it. It's a foible of human nature. All of us have some point where we get there. We just don't want to listen anymore. We don't want to hear it. Even if it's true, I don't want to know. That's why denial is the most popular state in the Union after California. You think about that. We like to live there. It's got its uses. Unfortunately, it's also got its limits, especially when really important things are at stake. 
like your present and eternal well-being. And so we deny, we dismiss, we diminish Jesus' resurrection based on factors like religion. I've got a religion. Culture, uh, my culture doesn't allow for that. Ethnicity, we don't do that. Political ideology, nobody I know does that. Personal immorality, that would be inconvenient if I did that. But not based on facts. Factors, not facts. Factors, all important in their own way, but none more important than Jesus, who, if it is true that he rose from the dead, is the way. Nobody gets out of this world alive but Jesus. If it's true, I want to know. If it's not true, I want to move on. I want to get to the heart of it. When I was a younger man, I was so tired of hearing people talk about Jesus. I was so turned off by the hypocrisy of church. And, and I didn't even go that often. In my house, it was a big argument between whether you were Catholic or Protestant. Neither one went to church. And if you pressed them on it, with all their good intentions, well, what, what do you believe about Jesus? Well, I don't really believe anything about Jesus, but I'm Protestant. I'm Catholic, but I don't really believe it, and I don't go, but you really should. Maybe you've experienced that too. But I wanted to get to the heart of it, so I started reading everything I could to say, what is going on here? And I found, over time, it got to the heart of me. And instead of being able to move on, I moved in. He moved in to my heart. And I said, I'm so glad I stopped to take a look at this. Nobody had ever told me this before. I'd never heard this before. I'd seen the, the weak, diluted, cultural, irrelevant version of this. I'd seen the hypocrisy of people who didn't even know that they were being hypocritical. Because I found out that all of us are hypocrites, and by God's grace, hypocrites get to say, oops, my bad, I repent, I confess, and they get to move on. If you don't even know that, you're stuck in your hypocrisy and you have nowhere to go. It's like a bad date that never ends. <laughs> so when people look honestly at the evidence, they're very often very surprised. This was Francis Collins' experience. Perhaps you know the name Francis Collins, currently head of the NIH, National Institutes of Health. He thought it irrelevant and irrational that anybody would believe in Jesus, assuming that Jesus could be God. Ridiculous that anybody needed that kind of a thing. After all, we've got science. And then a patient challenged him. A patient who was facing death with incredible calm and clarity of mind. And so his life was changed, turned upside down or more accurately turned right side up. I want to read you an interview with Francis Collins. Out of, uh, it was done by CNN. He starts out by saying, I'm a scientist and a believer, and I find no conflict between those worldviews. As the director of the Human Genome Project, I've led a consortium of scientists to read out the 3.1 billion letters of the human genome, our own DNA instruction book. <clears throat> as a believer, I see DNA, the, the information molecule of all living things, as God's language. And the elegance and complexity of our own bodies and the rest of nature as a reflection of God's plan. And then he goes on to say, I did not always embrace these perspectives. He didn't grow up hearing this. He grew up with people, parents and others who said, that's ridiculous, avoid it dismiss it. Don't even consider it. As a graduate student in physical chemistry, I was an atheist, finding no reason to postulate the existence of any truths outside of mathematics, physics, and chemistry. 
But then I went to medical school and encountered life and death issues at the bedsides of my patients. Challenged by one of those patients who asked, what do you believe, doctor? I began searching for answers. I had to admit that the science I loved so much was powerless to answer questions such as, what is the meaning of life? Why am I here? Why, why does mathematics work anyway? If the universe had a beginning, who created it? Why are the physical constants in the universe so finely tuned to allow the possibility of complex life forms? Why do humans have a moral sense? What happens after we die? I always assumed that faith was based on purely emotional and irrational arguments and was astounded to discover initially in the writings of the Oxford scholar C.S. Lewis and subsequently from many other sources, that one could build a very strong case for the plausibility of the existence of God on purely rational grounds. My earlier atheist's assertion that I know there is no God emerged as the least defensible is a British Writer G.K. Chesterton famously remarked, Atheism is the most daring of all dogmas, for it is the assertion of a universal negative. But reason alone cannot prove the existence of God, he says. Faith is reason plus revelation, and the revelation part requires one to think with the spirit as well as with the mind. You have to hear the music, not just read the notes on the page. Ultimately, a leap of faith is required. Finally, he says, for me, that leap came in my 27th year after a search to learn more about God's character led me to the person of Jesus Christ. Here was a person with remarkably strong historical evidence of his life who made astounding statements about loving your neighbor and whose claims about being God's son seemed to demand a decision about whether he was deluded or the real thing. After resisting for nearly two years, I found it impossible to go on living in such a state of uncertainty, and I became a follower of Jesus. Today, I want to give you an update on the status of Jesus' resurrection. His tomb is still empty. That's the soundbite version. His tomb is still empty. And yes, there are people who still deny it, but there are many, many people who are living and dying for it, for him. So today we're not gathered to pay tribute to his past. We haven't gathered here on a beautiful spring Sunday morning to pay tribute to a dead guy. We're long past the time that anybody would have personally known Jesus, like those dear women who went to honor him and to pay tribute to him. We're not here to honor his past, to pay tribute to his past. We're here to give testimony to his presence. That's what brings you here today. That somebody is here and you got dragged along with them thinking you were just going to get to go to brunch. Because they believe that Jesus is truly present, that he's alive, and that no other explanation covers the facts enough to say he's here he's alive I want to be with him and then we'll go eat yeah. don't be shocked 
If you're the guest of that person when before you eat, you're finally ready to eat what you've been waiting for all morning, and they say, can we thank God for this? Why? Because they can't imagine not thanking God for everything. Their whole life now is an experience of gratitude to the God who came looking out for them and looking after them and reaching them. The same God who's looking for you and reaching for you, who cares about you, knows you better than you know yourself and loves you in spite of what you think he might think about you. Nothing has changed in the way of facts. No new data has altered the evidence. No new insights about human nature or the meaning of life have been revealed. In 2,000 years, nothing has changed about the facts that present themselves to us and that compel us to take a first, second, or third look. He was crucified, certified dead, buried, guarded by pros. This is an important fact. Professional Roman soldiers were assigned on pain of their own death to guard that tomb to make sure that nobody messed with it because this is a very dangerous political person. We want no monkey business. We'll see you in three days. But God resurrected him from the grave. And so these women show up saying, you're kidding me. How could I tell anybody that? I don't know what I'd tell them. Where do I begin? In spite of 2,000 years of human history, Jesus' resurrection is still challenging us. Here's why. After 2,000 years, all the data still points to and reinforces the facts. There's been only one documented perfect person in all of history, Jesus. There's been only one person expertly and certifiably killed, buried, and then resurrected, Jesus. There's been only one person whose claims, whose personal character, whose physical resurrection from the dead perfectly aligns. There's no discontinuity between what he said and what he did. One person, guess who? Jesus. There's been only one person who fulfilled 300 prophecies concerning his birth, his life, and his death. One person, Jesus. There's been only one person worshipped as God across every possible human boundary. If you could go to church instantaneously everywhere in the world where people gather in the name of Jesus, you would need hundreds of translators at your elbow to help you understand what was being said. But in a way, you wouldn't need them at all. You just look at the faces of these people and the joy and the relief and the confidence and the compassion would overwhelm you. They'd speak volumes to you. And whose name is that being done? One, Jesus. There's been only one person who claimed to be God and quieted his critics. There's been only one person whose words are treated as the word of God himself. And so the fact is that Jesus fulfilled God's vision to redeem this world at all costs, whatever it took. He succeeded, and now he lives and reigns supreme over all creation. So, today, I simply want to remind you that no matter what you might have heard or believe to the contrary at this moment, Jesus is alive and on the move in this world. I just want to give you a fair warning. 
I want to give you fair warning that you can't get away from him because he's everywhere. He's alive and nothing can hold him back. He honors your personhood. He doesn't barge into your life, but he will keep knocking at the door of your heart in the most unlikely ways, at the most unlikely times, and you'll find yourself saying, can I not get away from this guy? And the fact is, no, you can't. Why would you want to? And so he's here too this morning, stirring up our hearts with the good news that he's with us. He's calling out to us to look at the evidence afresh and to risk being surprised by it. You might be here today as a cultural Christian, a bit complacent. I mean, you believe this. You consider it a traditional part of your cultural heritage, but really functionally, it's passe to you. It's like, yeah, so what? Eh. It's an interesting thing. It's a footnote to my life. I, 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 I have respect for it, you know, but really it uh, doesn't really fit anywhere. It's like a hood on my car. It's not really a functional part of my car. It's like something on my shelf that I look at. Oh, yeah, I got that trophy when I was in eighth grade. But maybe it's functionally passe. And for you, it requires you taking a closer look because I believe you're in for a very big surprise. You've grown up in every other part of your life. You've become very sophisticated professionally, socially, probably intellectually, emotionally, economically. Become sophisticated spiritually. Catch up with your life. Let your soul catch up with the rest of your life. Let your spirit become as informed as your mind is about a lot of things in this life. And watch your whole life be transformed in that process. Now, there's other people for whom this is passe who who assume that it's merely a religious myth. It's never been part of their background. It's not part of their experience. And they just assume it's a myth. It's a myth. It's an irrelevant myth. I feel sorry for them, so I don't say anything bad about it, but it's a myth. You've met these people. They find out what you believe, and they give you this skeptical look, a pained expression, that condescending, disdainful tone of voice, surely, surely, you don't know. You, but you seem so uh, intelligent, uh, savvy. You seem just so, uh, I don't know, normal. How can you believe this stuff? It's easy to simply dismiss Jesus in order to avoid considering the implications of his resurrection from the dead and this outrageous, socially inappropriate claim that he is the Lord of all. So I challenge you to look yet again, or perhaps for the first time, to look thoughtfully and and honestly at who he is and what he has done. You're not obligated to believe anything or to take anything without somebody being able to say, this is why. Nobody's asking you to put your mind in neutral, committing intellectual suicide, to simply accept what somebody tells you. But maybe this is the prayer that you need to pray. If you're complacent or you're completely antagonistic, okay, God, if you are who you say you are, and I feel like an idiot even praying to the air right now saying this, but God, if you are anything like what this guy's talking about, and I don't know about that guy either, as much as I don't know about you, but if you are who he says you are and apparently who you say you are and you've done what you've done, show me. I want to open my heart and my mind to you. If you want to get radical in life, if you want to do something really crazy, bungee jumping is ridiculous compared to this. Bungee jumping, somebody's tied it on your ankles. This one is a free fall. You don't know where you're going to land, but I'll tell you what, if you're open and honest, you'll land in the arms of God. And he'll say, I've been waiting for you.
Mossab Hassan Yosef was the last guy on the planet to think he would ever need Jesus. He grew up in a family of very loving, loving parents, a father he respected greatly, a very gentle man in a very dangerous, violent world. His father was one of the founders of Hamas. And though he supported all the agenda of Hamas, he, he himself was a very gentle man, and so Mossab grew up in that family. He respected no one more than his father, and he became a foot soldier in Hamas. He ended up becoming a spy for Israel because he saw the hypocrisy, he saw the oppression of his own people by the leaders of his people. And he found that he couldn't make sense of everything he'd learned, it made, didn't, didn't hold up. As he grew intellectually, it, he, it didn't hold up, and he was just told to believe this, believe this, believe this. And so finally one day he was walking through the streets of uh, the Arabic part of Jerusalem, and somebody said, hey, uh, you wanna come to a discussion, we're gonna talk about the Bible. And so he and another friend went, and they met some people who were Jewish at this thing, and, and not believers in Jesus, and this, this guy said, um, we just, we're just gonna read the Bible and see what it says. And so he started doing that in 1999. And he couldn't believe what he read. He couldn't believe what he saw. The first thing that shocked him was Jesus. He, he didn't know anything about Jesus. He heard Jesus referred to as a prophet, but he'd never read anything about Jesus. And he heard Jesus saying things like, love your enemies. God loves you. He's saying, what? It made him go and study the Quran more intensely. But from 1999 to 2005, a transition, a process, a transformation was happening in him. He came to a point after several years of saying, you know what, I, I really believe in Jesus. Not that he's God, but I, I, there's nobody like him. I want my leaders of Hamas to be like this. I want the leaders of Israel to be like this. I want everybody I know to be like this. And eventually, one day in 2005, he, he realized he'd come to this place that he didn't plan on coming. He said, I believe that he's God. I believe he wants me to walk with him. I have no category for this. And he asked somebody, he said to this woman, hey, um, I need to do what Jesus did. I, I need to be baptized. Can you baptize me? She goes, uh, yeah, I guess, sure. So he goes out off the coast of Tel Aviv on the beach there, beautiful beach, and he's baptized. And his life was radically changed. He found what he didn't know he was looking for the most unlikely candidate to be a follower of Jesus, part of the tribe of Jesus. He told his family and predictably they disowned him. They didn't know what to make of it. He wrote a book called Son of Hamas. If you want an incredible read, uh, read this book, The Son of Hamas. Believing that Jesus lives means believing that life makes no sense without him. That's what Mossab came to. That's what Francis Collins came to. That's the point I came to. That's the point that many of you here have come to. Or maybe you're coming there and you're going reluctantly, but you know he's calling me. I don't have any category for this. Remember, he's a category of one. You shouldn't have any category for this. He is the category for this. So as you open your heart and your mind to him, you, will t you also will find that life does not make sense but for him. Life can be good, life can be bad. It only makes sense in him. I used to think that it was losers who became followers of Jesus until I started meeting people who had so much together, who out of that place of strength and momentum and, and being disciplined and, and, and moral and all the great things said, and I've come to the place when I realize it's not enough. 
I come to the place where I realize I need Jesus. That was shocking to me. I was ready for the down and outer. I never knew that up and outers needed Jesus too. He's not just for the 99 or the one, he's for the 100% of us. And so if that describes you, then this is a special day for you to thank God for the life he's giving you, because it's a gift. You don't earn it, you can't buy it, you're not born into it, it's a gift we all receive by faith in his name. In fact, you can hardly find words to express it because your gratitude and joy for this gift of grace is so great. With all the beautiful songs, the ceremonies, the symbols of Easter, they only scratch the surface when you start to walk with God because you realize, he's so big. How do you properly thank him, praise him, reflect him? How do you get your mind around his word? You feel like a perpetual learner. And just as soon as you think you understand it all, you go, oh my gosh, kindergarten's over. I'm now in first grade. It's getting even more challenging and interesting. Why is this possible? Why is this great thing our joy to be able to walk with him one day at a time? Because he lives. And not only does he live, he loves. That's why we call him Savior. And that's why we call him Lord. His grace moves us from fear to friendship with him. His love and grace brings forgiveness and fills us with his Holy Spirit. And like Josephus, we find ourselves at the end of the day saying, and the tribe of Christians, so named for him, are not extinct at this day. And I'm so delighted to be part of that tribe. And I hope you are too. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this day. For what it means. For all in this day that points to you. Your love, your grace. Your, your triumph over evil, sin, death. Lord, nothing adequately describes us or defines us anymore. Not religion, not ethnicity, not socioeconomic status not political ideology, not even our immorality. The only thing that adequately describes us now that we are in you, learning to live this resurrection life with you, is that we are now called beloved sons of daughters by you. For that we give you honor and glory and praise and we thank you with hearts full of gratitude. And in Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen.